Let's open our Bibles tonight to uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 20. There we go. Okay. Normally on uh, Thursday nights, I, don't, I usually don't share too much on the, uh, on the screen, but sometimes it can help to have a, uh, a few maps, some things to just kind of straighten out what we're doing and where we're going. It can be helpful. So uh, if you remember, the last week we looked at chapters 18 through 20, and it was really detailing and outlining the wars and the conquests that David had accomplished uh, in his, uh, as he became king and as his tenure as king commenced. And, um, and David would use the plunder of these different places uh, to use the gold and the silver and all the materials. He would bring them back to Jerusalem and he would use them for his son Because remember, God said to David that he was not to build the temple, even though it was in his heart. And God commended him for the thought and the idea. Although God said, I don't need a house to live in. I never complained about being in in a tabernacle while you guys are all living in nice you know, paneled houses and everything. God wasn't really upset about that. He's like, it doesn't matter to me. I know who I am. I'm comfortable with myself, God says. You know, he's not... uh, He's not worried about his reputation or what people will think. He, he, he's not trying to one-up on anybody. I mean, for heaven's sakes, if you spoke all things into existence and you made everything that's, that, that's visible and invisible, I think you've got a lot to, You don't have to worry about your clout. God is God, and there is no other, right? And there's no one who can match him. He's, he's glorious and wonderful in all of his ways. And so God doesn't need a, a trophy on the wall. But can I tell you tonight, before we get started, as I was just mentioning that word, do you know that you're a trophy of God's grace? You're a trophy, every one of you. And never forget that when the world and even your family and even the church sometimes gets on your case and tells you that you're no good or makes you feel like you're no good. Remember that your Father in heaven sees you glorified in Christ. Right now, even with all of our imperfections, even with even our sin that still is at war with us in this in this life, remember that because the devil doesn't want you to remember that and your own flesh will refuse to let you accept it. But you must believe the promises of God. You are his workmanship and he will never leave you nor forsake you even to the end of the age. By the way, we are approaching the end of the age. Anybody notice? Why do I know that? Well, the things that are going on in the world right now are awfully, looking awfully like the setup that we see coming in the book of Revelation. And it's never been like that. Not globally, anyway. And now we see these things happening. And I can feel it. <laughs> can you feel it? I, just, I really sense the Lord is coming soon. We don't know the day or the hour, but I know he's coming. And when he does, our jaws will hit the ground and we'll be changed in the twinkling of an eye. Looking forward to that? A new body. Some of you are going, yeah, I need a new body. And I'll be one of them, you know. I'm looking forward to that. But over the last, uh, or last week, we looked at these, uh, these couple of chapters. We looked at 18 and 19, uh, these exploits and conquests of David. And again, he brought those. Uh, can you turn this down just a smidgen? Just a smidgen. And he would use those materials to give to Solomon to build the temple. God says, David, you can't do it, but your son is going to do it. 
And so David's heart was, well, if, he can't, if I can't do it, then I'm going to give him everything I can possibly give him. And what a great dad. He's like, if you're supposed to do it, son, you know, think about some fathers would be like, well, if he's going to do it, and then all of a sudden you start having a pity party, well, it was my kingdom to begin with, and why, you know, and you get all this tied up in a knot, and you get this hatred against your son, I wanted God to let me do that, no, you get to do it. And see, there was none of that. God had blessed David. God had told David for years to come, for, for eternity actually, that the, there would be one who would sit on the throne of David. And we know who that ultimately is. Who is it? What's his name? Isn't it wonderful? Jesus. It's Jesus, right? And David had that. God spoke to David concerning that. And so David was like, you know what? Just like he said before the Lord, Lord, I'm totally blown out. What can your servant say to you? You've told me things too wonderful for me to, uh, to even comprehend. And I could never deserve it, Lord. But his heart was, I'm going to do everything I can. I want to get my son ready so that when he's old enough, when the time is right, everything is going to be ready. The blueprint, I'm going to have, you know, David was like, I know exactly how it's going to be built. God gave him the dimensions, the, the blueprint, if you will. He gave him all the materials, so all it was needed was just the people to get behind it. And he even got the people together to stand behind Solomon, that when it came, he would just do it. And so 18 and 19 of chapter, uh, or in, in First Chronicles, was talking about this. And so um, after this battle that we're going to look at tonight, this is really the... Um, uh, David would still have wars at different times with the Philistines, but this would be his last conquest, if you will. And so let's go ahead and read chapter 20. It goes by very quickly, and then we will get into some things. And I want to warn you tonight, uh, this chapter is short, but Lord willing, Lord willing, I'm going to share some things with you at the end of this that will be a little disturbing, but I think is pertinent to our culture and what's going on. But I just want to let you know that it can be a little disturbing when we, get a, when we get further on if the Lord has me do it or not, okay? So I'm just waiting on him as we go. But let's read uh, chapter 20. Notice it says that it happened in the spring of the year at the time kings go out to battle that Joab led out the armed forces and ravaged the country of the people of Ammon and came and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem and Joab defeated Rabbah and overthrew it. And then David took their king's crown from his head and found it to weigh a talent of gold, and there were precious stones in it, and it was set on David's head. Also he brought out the spoil of the city in great abundance, and he brought out the people who were in it, and put them to work with saws and with iron picks and with axes. And so David did to all the cities of the people of Ammon, and then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem." Now the mood changes. <laughs> this gets a little weird. Now it happened afterward that war broke out at Gezer with the Philistines, at which time Sibachai the Hushathite killed Sipei, who was one of the sons of the giant. And they were subdued. Again, there was war with the Philistines, and Elhanan, the son of Jair, killed Lamai, the father or the brother, excuse me, of Goliath, the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And yet again, there was war at Gath, and there was a man of great stature with twenty-four fingers and toes, six on each hand and six on each foot, and he also was born to the giant. 
So when he defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, killed him. And these were born to the giant in Gath. And they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. So a lot of interesting things here, isn't there? And I emphasize some words on purpose. Um, Rabbi, if we go back to verse 1 here, Rabbi was this uh, place... It was east of the Jordan River. Uh, The Jordan River goes from the Dead Sea all the way up to the Sea of Galilee. And actually, this is a fault line. Uh, It's a plate tectonic right there in the center. So that's rife for an earthquake because that is a plate that is right in the center of that valley. And when we go to Israel, we travel right down through the Jordan Valley um, it's the best way to get from north to south because otherwise you're going through mountains and it's a, it's a hurricane and, a, and not very fun. And I don't think it's possible, actually. So you go through the Jordan Valley and, uh, and Rabbah is actually over here, excuse me, on the east side of the Jordan River, about 20 miles east of it. And the city of Rabbah would be the last, uh, again, of David's conquests. And so let's go back to verse 1, and then we're going to take this apart a little bit. So notice in verse 1 again, that it happened in the spring of the year. At the time kings go out to battle, that Joab led out the armed forces and ravaged the country of the people of Ammon and came and besieged Rabbah, but David stayed at Jerusalem. As we have gone through First and Second Samuel many, many months ago now, um, you recall, does this ring a bell to you? When it was in the spring of the year, the time that kings are supposed to go to battle, and they went out to battle, but David stayed behind, that ought to uh, ring a bell with you. It was while David's army, remember, was laying siege to Rabbah, this this city of the Ammonites on the east side of the Jordan. It was while David's army was laying siege to it. And what they would do is they would surround it and basically starve it out. They wouldn't just go in and attack everybody and kill everybody. They would wait until and, and, and people were starving, and then they would just either give up. Sometimes people would give up, and then you know, there's no bloodshed, and it can be somewhat pretty decent. Um, but they laid siege to it, and... Um, And so Joab and the army is there for quite a bit of time laying siege to it. And it's during this time that David had the affair with Bathsheba. And it was during that time when they were laying siege to that city, Rabbah. It was when all of that occurred, when David went up on top of his palace one night and saw her bathing and called to her and then had an illicit relationship with her and actually got her pregnant and then David, remember, in, in, in a fear, uh, thinking that, you know, um, you know, what are the odds of that happening? And so now she's with child. So David tries to get Uriah, one of the mighty men in his army, his mighty men, the Bible tells us, to bring him back to Jerusalem to have, you know, to talk with them and say, hey, how's the war going? How are things going? And, Joe, you know, Uriah would fill him in. And, and then David says, great, you know what? Go and uh, go home to your wife and go back out to battle the next day or whatever. And so David's thinking he's going to go in and he's going to be physical with his wife. He's been away for quite a while. And so he tries to do that, and it doesn't work. 
And then he starts to try to get Uriah drunk. He gives him wine and then encourages him to go home. And Uriah had more integrity than David at that moment. And then finally, he just lays outside of his door and doesn't do it. And so finally, David writes a letter, signs it with a signet ring, and covers it so nobody can see it. He says, Uriah, take this back to Joab. And so he goes back several miles, going over to the uh, eastern side of the Jordan, hands the letter to, to Joab, and Joab opens the letter. And Joab, remember, is his nephew. So it's his family member. It's his sister's brother. And so he's reading this letter and he says, set Uriah in the front of the battle and when things get really hot, back away from him. And Joab knew exactly what David was saying. I want to make sure that he dies. And so when he does die, and then they find out that she's with child, David swoops in and hopefully he can make himself look good by marrying her and supporting the child. What a wonderful man he is. And nobody would ever know, right? And it went on for a year. Until the Lord busted him. And and all the time of that year that he was just broiling inside, he was dying inside. And then finally the Lord convicted his heart about it and he broke. But the chronicler, isn't it interesting here in Chronicles, it, it, it makes no mention of this at all. The chronicler's purpose for Chronicles is not so much to rehash what had happened to David. In fact, he, he wants to um, rather extol the good things of David rather than these awful, horrible faults of David. And, and thank God for that. You know, what does the Bible say? Love covers a multitude of sin. You know, he already went through it once and it's recorded for everyone to see. Why bring it up again? Let's just get on with it, right? Because he did repent. He, he was restored. He wasn't quite the same, but he wrote some of the best Psalms that many of you men have, re- have uh, read in times of moral failure. And then you read Psalm 32, Psalm 51, and boy, it just hits you right between the teeth, doesn't it? But, but it's a wonderful thing. You know, it's, you, you feel like somebody knows what I'm feeling. And, and David knew. But right here, right here, in fact, I'm gonna, I want you to take your pencil or your pen and... Um, Right after the sentence, David stayed at Jerusalem, but David stayed at Jerusalem. Put a little comma there and off to the side, put in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12 through 24. So all of chapter 11 and then through chapter 12 up to verse 24. So all of that, those events that I just summarized for you about him sleeping with Bathsheba and then ultimately killing her husband, is in between, is right after that phrase, that sentence, but David stayed at Jerusalem. And, um, and the last sentence that we see uh, of verse 1, where it says, and Joab defeated Rabbah and overthrew it, through verse 3, it is uh, from right at that moment, that verse, that phrase, through verse 3 here in 1 Chronicles 20, is also recorded for us in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 26 through 31. So you can see that the chronicler purposely omitted this for a reason. It wasn't really his uh, slant, you know, just like the Gospels, you know. The Gospels have, each Gospel account has a, a thrust behind it. What is, the, what is the, the Gospel writer trying to portray? When you get into the Gospel of John, of course his, his 
desire is to show that Jesus Christ is God, that he's the Logos, that he's the word who became flesh. That was his slant. That was Everything in the gospel was to support that idea. Not so with the other gospels. They, were all, they all fit like this as far as the facts are concerned, but they all had different things that they wanted to show. They wanted to show him that he was the king, that he was the rightful heir to the throne of David. And in Mark's gospel, to show that he was the suffering servant, that he was the, the perfect servant. And then in Luke, the perfect man. And then, of course, in John. And, and so the chronicler does this on purpose. So notice in verse 2, Then David took their king's crown. This In the NIV, um, this could actually mean of Milcom. Now, um, this, this phrase, their king, then David took their king's crown, and that literally could mean of Milcom, because remember, Milcom was the god of the Ammonites. So the king of the Ammonites would have this uh, crown on his head, and it weighed a talent of gold. Do you know how much a talent is? That's 70 po- 75 pounds of gold. Do you know how much that'd be worth today? Do the math. It's like $1,600 an ounce times 16 times 75. That's quite a bit if we were to see that crown today. I got it in my home office, by the way. I got it in one of those little... Um, no... No, David took, and then, and then there were precious stones in it as well, and it was set on David's head. And also he brought out, notice, the spoil of the city in great abundance. And he brought out the people who were in it and put them to work with saws, with iron picks and with axes. And so David did to all the cities of the people of Ammon. So the people came under David's authority, and they would give tribute to David. And uh, the other, um, it tells us that uh, two out of the three prisoners, this, it tells us this in, the, uh, in, in Samuel, that David killed two-thirds of them and kept a third of them back to, be, to work with saws and uh, iron picks and with axes, to basically serve them. And I bet those, that one-third of that group of people were very happy to be alive and very happy to serve. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's like, well, what's the alternative, you know? And so, so notice verse 3, it says, Then David continued, or then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. And so this is the result of the battle, you know? He, they, they, they finish all this. And, and all the time I'm thinking about that, you know, I was thinking today, you know, it, it says in, in 2 Samuel, chapter 12, it tells us that when Joab had conquered Rabbah, he, had, he'd really done, he really had done all the work. He'd done all, he had done all the work, conquered basically everything, and then he told David, he sent back a courier to David and said, hey David, you better come and finish the city so that it'll be in your name, because if you don't come, it's going to be in my name. And so David, think of this, he's already feeling the guilt of his sin, of what he's done, and now he's going to go and he's going to claim victory. And somebody else did all the work while he stayed at home. Do you follow me, guys? Can you imagine the guilt that that must have brought upon him and how that just may have just gutted him in a sense and his heart broke? And so he comes back home to Jerusalem. Now the key changes to minor here. We're going to read some pretty strange things. Some pretty strange things. So notice, uh, it goes on here, and if, if you have a New King James Bible, the, the subject or the title over this next passage is The Philistine Giants Destroyed. 
So who were the Philistines and where did they come from? The Philistines were a non-Semitic people who came from the island of Crete in the Aegean Sea in the Mediterranean. So if you were to look at a map, you would see um, right under, and what, what, what would be modern day uh, Turkey, right here is the island of Crete. And what had happened is uh, th- these people were non-Semitic, meaning they were not from the line of Shem, okay? So anybody who is a Semitic person means that they came from the line of Shem. The Jews and most Arabs came, are Semitic, meaning they came from the line of Shem. Or I'm sorry, not, not the, some Arabs, but eh, never mind that. The Jews are Semitic. Let me just stay there, okay? <laughs> the Jews are Semitic because they came from Shem, from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Right, actually, from Noah. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, he went from uh, uh, from Noah, and then Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and then Shem down through you know Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all the way down to David, etc. And so they were non-Semitic, and they came from that island of Crete. And the Philistines were also called Kaphtarites or Cherethites. Remember, we've heard of David having Cherethites and uh, Pelethites, or um, uh, in his um, surrounding him, and these guys were bodyguards. And so it's believed that some of these Cherethites were actually hired mercenaries from the Philistines, and they were part of David's bodyguard. They were part of the secret service, if you will, which is kind of interesting, because David did have a name among them, didn't he? And there were some whose hearts were one to, to David, and but many were not. And so, um, and so that's where the Philistines came from. But they were a sea people, And obviously, they lived on an island, and of course they were, but there came a point where they migrated from Crete, and they went down south into Egypt, but um, uh, the king of Egypt, Ramesses III, uh, kicked them out, and this was around 1188 BC, he kicked them out, and so the Philistines wander up the coast, and they settle in what you and I would call Canaan, or modern-day Israel, and they settled there, and they had been there ever since. And so that's where they came from. And, um, and so these are the people. They were not descendants from the line of Shem, but rather from Noah's other son, whose name was Ham. They were descendants of Ham. In fact, um, you might want to mark in your Bible right about this time, right in Genesis chapter 10. Genesis chapter 10, verses 6 through 20. I'd like to read it to you for the sake of time. I'll just have you write it down and I'll just read it to you. Because it gives us, uh, this is called the table of nations. And I'm only going to read a a portion of it to you. uh, Because it talks about the, the families that came. Remember, after the flood, the ark settled on Mount Ararat. And from that area... Uh, Moses and his three sons and their wives came off of the boat, off of the ark, with the animals, and they began to repopulate the earth, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And so every one of us here today come from one of those three tribes, or three, three men. The Jews came from Shem. Uh, people in, in, in Egypt who have been born in Egypt all their lives, they're, they're Hamitic, they came from Ham. And the people up in, uh, and again, people are moving around now, but indigenous people, you know, the people up in uh, uh, Europe and in that area are from Japheth. And then the line of Shem went further east, and, um, and Ham went uh, kind of uh, south, 
east-ish. Uh, so, but notice, I'm just going to read to you verse 6 of Genesis chapter 10. It says, the sons of Ham, because these are, this is the foundation of where the Philistines came from. And now you can see where, where it's spoken of in the Bible, where these people came from. The sons of Ham were Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. And the sons of Cush were Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Reamah, and Sabtacha. Uh, and the sons of Reamah were Sheba and Dedan. And Cush, Cush begat Nimrod, and he began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. We know that, the, 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 the city of Babel. Erech, Akkad, and Calneh in the land of Shinar. From that land he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kalah, and Reason between Nineveh and Kalah. That is the principal city. But here it is, verse 13. Mizraim begat Ludim, Anamim, Lahabim, Naphtulim, Tuhim, Pathrusim, and Kasluhim, from whom came the Philistines and Kaphtarim. So the Philistines came from the line of Ham. Ultimately, it was from Noah to Ham to Mizraim to Kasluhim and then the Philistines. And so these people were a non-Semitic people. They were Hamitic, actually. Okay, And so... So verse 4, it says, Now it happened afterwards that war broke out at Gezer with the Philistines, at which time Sibachai the Hushathite killed Sipai, and it spelled his name. You remember in the Bible, especially in Kings and Chronicles and Samuel, names can be spelled different ways. Uh, don't let that throw you. Sometimes there's variants of spellings, and this is one of them. And here it's called Sipai, but it's, it's spelled Saph, S-A-P-H, in Second Samuel chapter 21, verse 18, the parallel account to this. Um, or a, a parallel account to this, who was one of the sons, notice, of the giant. So this Philistine, Sipei, was a son of the giant. Emphasis mine. <laughs> a giant. And, and, and this word in the, in the original Hebrew is Rapha, and the word means tall. So these people were very tall. They were a genetic there was something genetically going on with this race of people. They were very tall, and they were very large, and they were tyrants. They were bullies. Second Samuel chapter 21, beginning in verse 15, it records for us a little more information than what is here. And let me just read it to you because it's kind of interesting. It says, When the Philistines were at war again with Israel, David and his servants went with him down and fought against the Philistines. And David grew faint. And then Ishbibinab, who was one of the sons of the giant, so the sons of Rapha, the weight of whose bronze spear was 300 shekels, a very heavy spear because he was so large, who was bearing a new sword, thought he could kill David, but Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, who was David's nephew, 
He came to his aid and struck the Philistine and killed him. And then the men of David swore to him, saying, You shall go out no more with us to battle, David, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. We don't want your life to be snuffed out. All the promises are in you, and we want to keep you alive. So it didn't go so well for David, but his nephew came and and took this battle and killed this giant. And again, verse 5, there was war with the Philistines. And El-Hanan, the son of Jair, killed Lamai the brother of Goliath the Gittite. Yes, Goliath. The one who, it tells us in Second Samuel, or in Samuel, it tells us that David went out against him. Remember, he was nine feet tall and nine inches, at least. Think about that. Shaquille O'Neal is seven foot one. So this guy, Goliath, is actually at least two feet, two and a half feet taller, maybe even three feet taller than Shaq. Pretty big guy. And it tells us in 2 Samuel 21, verse 22, that these four men that, I, that, that, were, that have been mentioned were born of Rapha in Gath. Gath was a Philistine city, one of the five Philistine cities. And he fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. In fact, Goliath had four brothers, and um, as we have already read this, and as um, what we already read here, um, he had four brothers. Uh, the first one was Ishbi Binab. Uh, he's uh, recorded for us in 2 Samuel chapter 21, verse 16. And then there's Saph, or Sipei, who we saw in 2 Samuel 21, verse 18. The third one was Lamai, and he's mentioned in 1 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 5, and also in 2 Samuel 21, verse 19. And then there's this man who we're going to be getting to here shortly. We already read it, but we're, we're going to get to him again. I call him the 24-digit man. <laughs> he had 24 digits, six fingers on each hand, six toes on each foot. This guy was a genetic nightmare. What was going on in his body? Nobody knows. Maybe he got a little too close to Three Mile Island when the, when the radioactivity was spilling over. You know, something happened. A lot of mutations, a lot of weirdness. And it tells us, and, and I bring this up because Goliath had four brothers. Do you remember what it says in 1 Samuel 17 when David went out to meet Goliath? What did it say? That David, this is in 1 Samuel 17, verse 40. Then he, David, took his staff in his hand, and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook. And if you go to Israel with us next end of April or end of February, early March, we go to this place, the Elah Valley. And there is still that same stream that runs through there. It's like a wadi. It, it runs through it. And it was in that very place that David reached down and he picked up five smooth stones. Five stones. Is it because David was unsure of his ability with a sling? No, I, I personally believe, although it's not written, is that David had one for Goliath and he had four more in his bag because if his brothers came out, he was going to take them out too. And I like that. I love that about David. Verse 6, back in our text. Yet again, there was war at Gath, and there was a great man of stature. We don't know this man's name. He's just a 24-digit man. He was a man of great stature with 24 fingers and toes, six on each hand, six on each foot. And he also was born to the giant. Notice, that word literally is Rapha. 
the father of a race of giants known as the Rephaites, who lived with the early Philistines and perhaps even intermarried and mingled with them. So verse 7, when David, or so when he, this 24-digit man, when he defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, killed him. Now it makes you wonder why, you know, when God brought the children of Israel into the promised land, remember he told them to kill everybody. Literally wipe out man, woman, child, beast, everything. Now why would God be so critical and so, I mean, the Bible does say that they were, for hundreds of years, they had been committing gross sin, gross idolatry, child sacrifice all the time. These people were horrible. And God gave them space to repent. But he, there was a time when judgment had to fall. He didn't want any remembrance of these people whatsoever. And God has the right to do that. He knows their hearts. And he also knew what was in the land, these giants that were in the land. There was something about these giants that God really was repulsed by. They were bullies. They were tyrants. Remember when Joshua and Caleb and the other ten men went into the promised land when they were sent by Moses and they went in and they came back and ten of them gave a bad report. Oh, there's, there's giants in the land. We, we look like grasshoppers in their sight. And Caleb, Caleb and uh, Joshua are like, no, let, let us at them, Lord. Let's go get them. You know, we, we're going to take care of this, right? But they were small in these giants' sight. And they were scared to death. There was something about these people. And yes, I am stirring the pot. So these were born to the giant in Gath. Where was Goliath from? He's from Gath, right? So David, or I'm sorry, not David, but Goliath, born of this giant, him and his four brothers. I'd like to share with you for our remainder of time uh, something, and it's a proposed genealogy of Goliath and the Anakim. Anakim, excuse me. And I want to go right back to the very beginning because I, I've been kind of stirring the pot with putting emphasis on giants and these giants in the land. And there's something with these people, with this race of people. In fact, it was something that God was not happy with at all. So, I put up here on the screen a genealogy, uh, a proposed genealogy. I, I think there's some things that could be filled in here, but I think as far as the, 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 the crux of the matter, I believe this is accurate. And I'll have the scriptures and share with you why. And Goliath, his lineage goes all the way back to a race of people back in Genesis 6 called the Nephilim. The Nephilim, the fallen ones. And we'll look more at them in a little bit. The fallen ones. The Nephilim. They were also called giants. In fact, let me read to you out of Genesis chapter 6. You can see it on the screen here up in the top. You might want to just take a picture of this, or you can take a picture afterwards. I'll show it to you. Um, but write down these scriptures and look for yourself, and I think you'll come to the same conclusion. In Genesis chapter 6, it says that there were giants, and this was before the flood. There were giants, and the word literally means Nephilim. 
in Genesis 6, there were giants on the earth in those days. And also afterwards, speaking of after the flood, because that's what's, that's what's going to happen very next in chapter 7 was the flood of Noah. So there were giants, these Nephilim, these fallen ones on the earth in those days in Genesis before the flood. And also afterward, when the sons of God, the Benai Elohim, they came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. What do you think about that? The Benai Elohim, I'm, I'm butchering the Hebrew, but I'm just going to say the Benai Elohim. They can be angels, but the Bible says literally Nephilim means fallen ones. So there's something awry here. And it goes on in Genesis, these were the mighty men of, who were of old, men of renown. Now let's go forward to Arba. So how can we trace Arba back to, in, in all of this? How can we fit Arba into this um, proposed genealogy? In Joshua chapter 15, beginning in verse 13, it says, Now to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, he gave a share, Moses did, among the children of Judah, according to the commandment of the Lord to Joshua, namely Kirjath Arba, which is Hebron. So Arba was the father of Anak. So do you see? Father, father of Arba is Anak. So we, 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 we're getting somewhere here. And Caleb drove out the three sons of Anak, there, from there, Sheshai, a high man, and Talmai, the children of Anak. And then it tells us in Numbers chapter 13 something really interesting. And this is the report of the spies who went in to spy out Canaan. Numbers 13, beginning in verse 32. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report, meaning the other ten, not Joshua and Caleb, but the others. They gave them a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, The land through, uh, through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it were great men of stature. Notice, they were, they, there we saw giants. And the word again is Nephilim. The, these are the descendants of Anak, that came from the giants, the Nephilim. That's what it says. And we were like grasshoppers in our own sight, so that we, so, and so we were in their sight. I love what the NIV, if you have an NIV Bible translation, it, it basically just says it plain. You don't even have to look at the footnotes in the King James. It, the NIV says it flat out. <laughs> The land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw were of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak can't come from the Nephilim. And we seemed like grasshoppers in our own sights, and we looked the same to them. And so Anakim, if you look at the next uh, group of people, so we know that Arba was the father of Anak, and Anak gave birth to other men called Anakim, so Anakim is the plural of Anak. Whenever you take I am and you attach it to a people group or whatever, it makes it plural. Okay, so in Joshua chapter 11, and again, this is before they even, um, just as they were settling the promised land, at that time, 
uh, verse 21 of Joshua 11. At that time, Joshua came and cut off the Anakim, notice, from the mountains, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, from all the mountains of Judah, and from all the mountains of Israel. Joshua utterly destroyed them with their cities. But notice, none of the Anakim were left in the land of the children of Israel. They remained only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod. Did you follow that? If we take it at face value, what that means is the only Anakim that were left were in those other cities, meaning in Gaza and Gath and Ashdod. And who, who do we know came from Gath? Goliath, right? And so we can safely say that Goliath, he, came, he was one of the Anakim. And it's very possible, and this is what I didn't fill in the blanks here, but it's very possible that the Anakim also interbred, and it may even be further up the chain where we had the, the, the giant Rapha, and, and they may be part of the Anakim as well. But these are a race of giants that came from very nefarious means going all the way up to Anak and then to Arba and then finally to the Nephilim whom God judged the world partly because of these things, of the evil things that were happening. And we may get to that at the end. And this is why we believe that Goliath is either directly or indirectly a descendant of the Anakim. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 28, they said, Where can we go up? Our brethren have discouraged our hearts, saying, The people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. Moreover, we have seen the sons of Anakim there. So these were giants, bullies, tyrants. Don't you hate bullies? And when you're tall and you're big and you're bold and you're a warrior, there's just no end. You, you pick on everybody. You see it on the playground every day at, in local schools. Big bullies. And then finally we get to Goliath at the very bottom here. And Goliath, it tells us that he was a champion who was from Gath. This is in 1 Samuel 17, verse 4 and 5. That Goliath was from Gath. He came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits in a span, which if you do the math, and a cubit is 18 uh, inches, uh, brings him about to nine feet nine inches at least. And so he had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale, armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels or 125 pounds of chain mail, of, of gear. And because he's so big, he can do that, Right? That's right. <laughs> now let me get to something. I, I've, I've kind of given you a little bit of information and I'm going to finish up our time together and something a little more spooky. Because I, I didn't want to get into the next chapter the next, and just bear with me, okay? This, is, this may be disturbing to some of you. It may, many of you may have heard of it by now. Um, but there's a lot going on about this, and so it's one of those elephants in the room, so let's talk about that. Yeah. So, we looked at the Philistines, where they came from, and we looked at this, these giants that were either interbred with the Philistines, these races of people that were giants, and they were bullies, they were tyrants. And Genesis, as we have already read, it sounds pretty ominous. There's something going on with these fallen ones, these Nephilim, and intermarrying with human women and giving birth to these creatures, these race of people. Very 
spooky thing. It almost sounds, you know, isn't it true that sometimes truth is scarier than fiction? Sometimes the truth in the world, which we don't know much about, is more frightening than fiction. And I just want to propose something to you today because some of you have already been hearing these things. And this is something that uh, Jack Hibbs, honestly, had brought to the forefront a couple of weeks ago. He did a, a three-part series on this kind of thing. And I figured while we were talking about these Nephilim and uh, the Philistines that I would just finish up our time together addressing this. And it is kind of a bomb at the end of the message. So don't go running out screaming. But let me just tell you what I believe. I believe that, uh, you know, concerning aliens and UFOs and UAPs or unidentified aerial phenomenon. I remember Chuck Missler many years ago did a, did a pretty good job at exposing all of this. And so recently it's just come to the forefront again, but it's not a new thing. But it's good for us to talk about because the world is, is being... Uh, conditioned. The world is being deceived. And as Christians, we ought to have something to say about this. And does the Bible have anything to say about this? Yes, it does. So here it is. I'll tell you what I believe. I believe, and, and, and you don't have to agree with me, but I'm just going to lay out what I believe. <laughs> I believe that these beings or these UFOs or other aerial phenomena are not just within our dimension. I believe that they are spiritual beings, meaning they are fallen angels, uh, demons, demons who left their first habitation in the spiritual realm and for a season and at certain times became physical beings. And in ancient times, they interbred with human women and had children. We just read that in Genesis 6. We're going to read it again in just a minute. But these children that were born became a race of giants and tyrants that terrorized the ancient world. They terrorized them. And if these giants were the product of the union between these demons, these fallen angels, and human women, if that is the case, and I believe biblically there is a good Bake case for this. It is no wonder that God wanted to destroy this race of giants and their offspring from the face of the earth before and after the flood. There was a special hatred in God's heart for this. But that doesn't that shouldn't shock us, should it? A demon making physical form. I know this is kind of I'm stretching it and I'm out on the on the outer rim here, okay? So bear with me. But isn't it true that in the Bible that there are angels, good angels, God-fearing God angels manifesting themselves in human form to interact with human beings at different times throughout history? We see this. You can read it in Genesis 19. We don't have time to go through all these, but you read Genesis 19 tonight, and you tell me those two angels that came to Abram that were going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, those were two physical men, but they were angels. Angels of God. And the men of Sodom wanted to have sex with them. That's how perverted the culture became after the flood. And there were other times. In Joshua 5, 13 through 15, who is the, the commander of the Lord's army that stood before Joshua? I believe it was a, a pre-incarnate visitation of Jesus Christ in the flesh. I believe that. 
And in Judges chapter 13, when Manoah and his wife, uh, as, as they were musing about the birth of their son, who hadn't been born yet, that the angel waited for them to come out and bring an offering. And when they made the offering on the fire, that the angel ascended into the fire and disappeared from their sight. But he was physical and he was there with them. So these are angels, true angels of God. So is it any stretch of the imagination for uh, the devil or Satan to have his agents? And when God, when God allows it. Remember, they're not just free agents to do whatever they want. See, as we get closer to the end of, of, of this age, of the church age, before Christ takes us out of here, and before the tribulation period, and before the millennial reign of Christ, before that new age begins, and in fact, before his second coming, the deceptions are going to ramp up unlike we've ever seen. If you've been spinning, if your head has been spinning over the last three years of the craziness that has been happening in our country, in our media, in our government, and in the medical profession, they have totally blown us away by their deception. That's a true statement. You may not agree with me, but that's okay. I have the mic. <laughs> but I believe that with all of my heart, and it's playing out right before us right now. But the deceptions are getting worse and worse and worse, and it's getting to the point where you can't even know what the truth really is anymore. But I'm so glad that this is the truth, right? You can count on this. In fact, that's why I'm bringing this out, because we don't need to be deceived. God doesn't want us to be deceived. He's told us these things so in advance so that we won't worry. And even knowing about them can be a little daunting, I'll be honest with you. But, you know, the more you read it, the more you're like, okay, Lord, I, I get it. And, and this is the power of Satan. And you're allowing it. At certain times, remember, nothing can be done. Satan cannot do anything unless God allows him to. Read the first two chapters of the book of Job. Satan wanted to destroy Job, and God says, you can do this, but you can go no further. You can't go any further than this. And the devil took it right to the edge, but he couldn't kill Job. God would not allow it, and therefore he could not. But God allowed it. Do you follow me? And he's going to allow, as we get closer to his coming, he's going to allow things in this world, lying signs and wonders. You think they're, they're going to get a lot worse, folks. But see, thank God that before it gets really bad, I believe the Bible tells us that the Lord's going to take us in the rapture. Because he's not going to allow his wife, his bride, to go through his wrath that he's going to bring upon the earth. God has not appointed us to wrath. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 9, right? So these deceptions are coming. And so it ought not to seem weird, but open with me. Open with your Bible to Genesis chapter 6. I'm going to read, I'm going to read this very quickly because we uh, got about 10 minutes here and I just want to get through this. And it's just kind of like a really quick thing. We could Maybe sometime we can spend more time, uh, a whole thing on this. I don't know that I really would enjoy that, but it's, uh, it's the elephant in the room, especially with, in light of the certain things that are coming on CNN right now as we speak. Anyway, Genesis chapter 6. Notice, verse 1. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply, and again, this is before the flood, before uh, men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God, now underline that, because that means, that is the, the phrase is benai Elohim, which means angels, 
But, and when they saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. Wait a minute. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to give you some verses, and I would encourage you to look up this word sons of God, this phrase, because the exact way it is in Hebrew, it's in English as well. If you look at um, in Job chapter 1, verse 6, if you look at Job chapter 2, verse 1, if you look at Job chapter 38, verse 7, it all speaks of these sons of God, and it's never in a good light. In context, you know that these are angels, but they're fallen angels. They're demons. And so notice, so the, the, the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took to themselves wives for themselves, all whom they chose. And the Lord said, notice the God's reaction. This seems kind of odd. It, I thought union between two people was a holy thing, that it was a God-given thing. Yeah, but not between an angel or that manifests himself as physical with a physical woman on the earth. And notice God's response. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with, men, with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet as days shall be 120 years. In other words, 120 years, and I'm flooding this earth. And there were giants, verse 4, the word is Nephilim, on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to, men, to them. These were the mighty men, meaning the word there for mighty men is they were warriors, they were brave, they were strong. Literally, they were tyrants who were of old men of renown. And then the Lord, notice, saw that the wickedness of men was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And you can read the rest of this, but this is the union that happened. Uh, and, let, and just for the sake of time, because I'm looking at the clock, let me read to you what it says in Jude. Jude is the book right before, the letter right before the book of Revelation. And Jude, who was Jesus' half-brother, wrote this letter and he said this, But I want to remind you, Though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain or their, their, their first estate. Right? Are you following that? And the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh. The word strange means flesh not of the same kind, of the same form, of the same nature, or of the same class. So these angels came after strange flesh, something that wasn't, not the same kind. Do you follow? Everybody with me? <laughs> and, and they were set forth, uh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So what am I saying? These Angels, let me subscribe to you, that these angels manifested themselves back in the book of Genesis. These demons manifested themselves in human form, in some kind of form, had relations with the daughters of women, daughters of men, and had children. And these, the Bible says, were the Nephilim. And these are the race of people that were the giants, these tyrants, these men who terrorized the ancient world So let me suggest to you that the things that we're seeing now 
I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, we look around and we don't necessarily can't tell one person from another. But, you know, when you're out in Monroe Avenue, you may, you may encounter a fallen angel in physical form. And I'm sure some have. Demons. Yeah, they're, they're, they're demons. And, um, and, and that can be a little upsetting, only if God allows. But what does Ephesians tell us? Ephesians chapter 6. This ought not to surprise us because... Paul said in verse, in verse 10 of Ephesians 6, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, literally created uh, being superior to man, uh, spiritual potentates, that's literally what that word means, against the rulers, and this word rulers is literally an epithet of Satan, the devil, and his demons. So we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now at this point you're thinking, man, I just want to go home and pray. <laughs> This is pretty dark and pretty crazy stuff. It is. It is. And I don't plan on sharing this a whole lot, but here it is. And and it seems like an opportune moment to share it. And Jesus, even before um, he uh, was crucified, remember when he was with his disciples at the Olivet Discourse, and Peter, James, and John, and Andrew came to him privately, and he said to them, as they sat on the Mount of Olives, and this is in Matthew 24, verse 3, they said, tell us, when will these things be? Because Jesus said, not one stone will be left upon another. And, and also, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And so Jesus answered them and told them about the events of the end of the age. He, he didn't really go into when Jerusalem would be sacked. Uh, Luke takes care of that, but uh, Matthew just tells us the other part. And so, Matthew tell, and so Jesus answered and said to them, take heed, notice what Jesus says. And these are events, Jesus is speaking of a time at the end of the age, which we are getting close to the end of the age. And what was the hallmark? What what was the, 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 the word that Jesus highlights for them? He says, take heed that no one deceives you. Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. In fact, um, in, in, the, in the King James Version, it says, take heed that no man deceive you, singular. So it could be, you know, speaking of the Antichrist, we really don't know. But Jesus, going on in Matthew 24, in verse 36, he says, but of that day, speaking of the coming of Christ, to the earth, his second coming. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will be the the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood that we were reading about, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away in judgment. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. So if he's saying that these end days that are coming upon us and that we're starting to see them very clearly now, they're going to be like the days of Noah. And as we looked at some of these things in the scripture in Genesis chapter 6 specifically, we're seeing these kinds of things happening. And they're accelerating. 
They're accelerating. Yeah. 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 And the fact that these demons are making themselves manifest at, at times, even now, I believe is just a great deception. See, the world is being desensitized to UFOs and the talk of aliens. We've seen movies about it. And we're desensitized to it. We're kind of assuming, you know, that a lot of people even believe it. You know, Roswell and everything else. And they're, they're believing that there are real aliens out there, an intelligent life out there somewhere. But the Bible mentions not, nothing of other life on other planets. But it does mention demons. And demons, and here's why I believe that. Because when there was a, a man recently who was a, 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 a Navy, or I think he was an, uh, an Air Force or Navy pilot, and, and this is, there's more than one occurrence of this, but they, they've seen this, and the people on the boats looking at the radar, they've seen this too, and it's, it's recorded in congressional record just recently. The fastest thing that we've got going is like 3,000 miles an hour. I don't know what Mach that is, but that's pretty fast. And yet these things are able to go 13,000 miles an hour and make right-angle turns on a dime. In water, out of water, it doesn't make a difference. And they're seeing them. They're seeing these crafts. They're seeing these things. And my opinion is, you don't have to agree with me, but I believe this is just setting us up for the great deception. I don't believe they're aliens at all. I believe they're demons. And I believe God is allowing people to believe this lie. And what's going to happen when the church is removed in the rapture and the man of sin, the world ruler who will step forward, and what is he going to say concerning all these Christians who are now suddenly missing? Will he claim, and I'm stealing this from Dave Hunt many years ago. Dave Hunt said this at a pastor's conference at uh, Calvary the Finger Lakes, and I'll never forget it, and my jaw dropped. I didn't even, like, what? It never hit me until I read, until he said this. Maybe he would claim, think of this, the world's in turmoil, the church has been removed, people have been vanished, right, in the twinkling of an eye, and the man, the ruler of the world, will stand up when the whole world is going chaos, it's in chaos, and he'll say, I know where they went. We've been trying for, and I'm just going to act like I'm the man of sin. I really am not. I hope not. Uh, he's going to say, I know where these people went. For years, we've been trying to progress as a, as a country, as a, as, a, as a world to a greater consciousness. And these people, these people are the ones who are keeping us from achieving that goal. Every time we try to pass the Green Deal, every time we try to pass this or pass that and, and try to make abortion legal, they're always just fighting against us. And now that they're gone, the beauty we can have together. Everybody grab hands together. I'd like to teach the world to sing. Remember the cold Coke commercial? Everyone's going to be living in harmony, thinking that it's all great and fun and games. Right? And then that's what they're going to think. And what a great way. And then when he shows signs and wonders, the God, it tells us in Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, that God is going to allow that man of sin to have all power. Now, obviously, God has all power, but he's going to have all power, lying signs, and wonders. And when he explains to people that these people have been taken by aliens so that we can continue on in this wonderful utopia that we've always wanted, and then he performs a miracle on CNN, 
and everyone sees it, everyone's going to flock to this guy's feet. They're going to take the mark. They're going to do every, anything he says. And he's going to be a, probably a really fine gentleman. He's probably going to look well. He's probably going to speak well. He's going to be a great speaker, probably a handsome guy as well. He's going to have it all together, smooth operator. He's going to be a smooth operator, and this guy is going to deceive. And is it possible? This would no doubt be the great delusion, because the Bible says that when the churches are moved, God is going to send a great delusion. Could this be the delusion? Could this be the lie? Singular, the lie? We've been conditioned for it, think of it, for the last 70 years. The movies, the, the sightings, the photographs, and now you got aircraft pilots and even commercial pilots all saying the same thing. I saw this thing go right in front of me, and then it went boop. I saw this thing go in front of me, and it went 90 degrees right down into the ocean, and there was no splash. What is this? This is not some... And they're tracking this stuff on radar and everybody's jaws are dropping. And the, the governments don't know what to think about it. But it could go down like that. Just a thought. So take heart. This is where it ends tonight. Sorry that it's kind of this spooky. But when you think about these Nephilim, these, these people these fallen angels that interbred, why is it such a far stretch for us to think that they can't manifest them now in, in, in a physical form? Or just, even if we don't see them, we see their phenomena, their aerial phenomenon that they, that they do and the, whatever craft that they're in. It doesn't really matter because people are going to, people who want to believe it are going to believe it and they're going to think, you know, and then they'll come back and say, well, Jesus was an alien too. And there's been reports of that, people communicating with these demons, and they're all saying that Jesus is just like them. Well, why not Hare Krishna? Why not Buddha? Why not Allah? Why not? They don't mention any of those other guys because Christ is God. And if they can deceive you into thinking that he's just some alien, think of it. It's, it's kind of mind-twisting, and it's ill. It's ill in the brain in every way. So... How'd we get that out of Chronicles 20? Well, it was actually pretty easy. Because we're talking about these Philistines and these Nephilim and where they came from and, and, and what's happening today and how we're being conditioned. So I want to encourage you, even though that is very unstable, <laughs> un, it's, uh, it's not easy to hear, um, I would encourage you to go listen to this message again or look at your notes. Go back and read it for yourselves and just take a look and see if that could not be the, the way it really is. I think it seems to be pretty clear in the Bible. And if these things are not, these sightings that are happening are not holden to normal physics like the rest of everything else on this earth, then it's from a fourth dimension. Do you follow me? It's from a spiritual dimension that we can't see. And that's pretty alarming. But to me, that doesn't bother me so much. I would rather that they, were, or that they were demons rather than aliens because the Bible mentions nothing of aliens. Because if they're aliens, then they have sinned too, and they need a Savior. There's one Savior of the world, do you follow? Jesus didn't make, you know, in Genesis, it doesn't say that he made the, 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 the earth and the 
God formed the earth and everything else, you know, it doesn't say, oh, by the way, there's, 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 plant, there's earth, on, you know, uh, life on planet earth. And there's also some guys over here. We started something on the side over here in case this went bad. And if that went bad, we got another contingency plan in the wings, just in case. There's no mention of that at all. We are the only ones, folks, and you have to believe that. We are the only ones that can withstand. I would encourage you to watch a video. It's called, I don't think it's out on the internet, but you can buy the DVD. I think I even got a copy. It's called The Privileged Planet. And it talks about these, uh, these really wonderful scientists, some that are born again and some that are not. And they're all saying to themselves, when they look at it honestly, there's no other place in the, in the universe where life can be sustained but this one little speck of grain of sand in the solar system. We are just close enough to the sun that we don't fry and we're not too far away where we'll freeze to death. It is the optimal and the only optimal place for life to happen. And guess what? It did. Because it's exactly what God said he did. Do you follow? To me, that's very encouraging. That means that when I read my Bible, I don't have to worry about some other planet somewhere. I'm like, no, I live on terra firma. And God came here to save us. Only. There's no other planet. Oh, but they found a, a drop of water on Mars. So that means that there's been grand civil... Come on. I mean, really, think it through. Just because there's water, or there's a water vapor somewhere, oh, we've got to look under that, you know, find out you know, what it is, and... It's just lunacy, folks. It's lunacy. Trust in your Bible. Trust in Jesus. Amen? Let's stand and let's pray. <laughs> Lord, we just thank you for your word. Lord, the veracity of your word, the truth of your word. It is so good, Lord, and we're so thankful that we, can, we don't have to fear, Lord, anything. We don't have to fear anything, Lord. Rather, we fear you, but we don't even need to fear you because you've saved us, Lord. If we are yours, we've got nothing to worry about, Jesus. And I am so glad for that because, Lord, if I wasn't yours right now, I'd be completely terrified. And I would find my solace in the bottom of a, of a bottle because I couldn't handle what I'm seeing and what's coming if I even believed what was coming. And yet you, Lord, you, in your mercy and your grace, you've been so kind to us. Lord, you are the good shepherd. You're the one who goes before us. And you show us things to come. Lord, you're, by your spirit, you're doing these things. You're revealing things for us in advance so that we wouldn't be afraid, that we would have a solid foundation to stand upon. And Lord, there'd be nobody or there'd be nothing that could shake us from that firm foundation which is the rock of our salvation who is Jesus Christ and all of God's saints said, Amen. Amen.